The United States and Cuba meet to talk about migrants. And will Miami build a soccer stadium complex over a public golf course? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. With tens of thousands of Cubans trying to come into America, the U.S. and Cuba held their highest level diplomatic talks this week in four years. The focus was on the massive increase of Cuban migrants leaving the island hoping to come to the United States. What was discussed and what are the options? And then the effort to build a soccer stadium in Miami has been kicked down the road for months. City commissioners are due to decide next week. So what's at stake for the community? It's all ahead on the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week and for supporting public broadcasting here in South Florida. On Thursday, officials from the United States and Cuba spoke about migration for the first time in four years. It comes as the number of Cubans leaving the island, taking to the Florida Straits, or arriving at the U.S. southern border has skyrocketed. More than 1,400 Cubans have been stopped by the Coast Guard since last fall on the water, and that's about five times the number compared to two years ago. Over 70,000 have arrived at the U.S. border with Mexico in the past six months. Few are being deported from the United States. The Washington Post reports data from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement indicate just 20 Cubans have been returned since November. And the agency told the Miami Herald Cuba has stopped accepting deportations of Cubans back to the island. Until this week, there hadn't been any immigration talks between the two countries since 2018, when the Trump administration rolled back the Obama administration's reopening to Cuba policy. So we're going to talk about Cuba-United States relations, certainly as it relates here to South Florida. What are the options for the two countries can do to address this migrant crisis that's on the southern border and on the water off the shores of Florida? What role does South Florida play in addressing this crisis, and how is this affecting our community? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. We want to hear your voices during this Friday conversation here live on the South Florida Roundup. You can also join us on social media. Find us at WLRN. WLRN's America's editor, Tim Paget is with us. Tim, any word on any of the outcome from Thursday's discussions? Um, all they released um, late yesterday was a press release saying that they had had constructive discussions with the government of Cuba, the, the officials, the delegation that uh, uh, they met with there in Washington. Um, as you said, this was the first discussion they've had on migration accords since 2018. And... To tell you the truth, no. Okay. <laughs> we did not learn a lot about what they discussed. And, uh, and and I think Nora was also on a call this morning with the State Department, and, and uh, she uh, intimated that there, there wasn't uh, much that we learned from that either. Uh, Nora is Nora Gamas-Torres, who's with us, El Nuevo Herald and uh, Miami Herald. Nora, welcome back to the program. Can you share with us anything that you were able to glean from that uh, call this morning? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, um, I was in a call with uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Emily Mendrala that actually led the U.S. delegation um, attending the meeting. Uh, and, and, you know, several reporters tried to ask repeatedly if there was like a concrete result from the talks. And uh, apparently that there was no res concrete result or, you know, that the U.S. is not uh, yet ready to disclose it. Uh, but apparently 
because also the Cubans late night uh, yesterday, they issued their own statement. And it was it was interesting. It was like a more combative statement, listing all their complaints about you know, the U.S. not complying with these migration accords. And it kind of contrasted a little bit with the mortars statement put out by State Department that, you know, uh, actually uh, said or labeled these uh, talks as constructive. Hmm. So it doesn't seem to uh, have resulted in, in concrete results, such as, for example, resuming, uh, you know, full consul services in in the embassy of Havana, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always a, a, a delicate diplomatic dance in terms of the rhetoric. And uh, uh, both Tim and Nora, you guys have refined and perfected the art of reading between the lines in these diplomatic communiques. But the question that I want to ask here is, who is at the table? Who do we know? What level of diplomats were engaged in this conversation, Nora, on Thursday between the U.S. and Cuba? It was, uh, you know, the, the U.S. was led by uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Emily Mandrala, and then the Cubans were headed by, um, um, I, I just <laughs> forgot uh, the name they, just right they, now. They, they were led by, 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 oh. by Vice Foreign Minister uh, Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo. Carlos, Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo, who has, by the way, been uh, a frequent critic of the U.S. on, right. on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um so it was not, you know, the, at the highest level, but it was pretty high, uh, yeah. you know, especially because there haven't been these sort of talks in four years. Yeah. So, Tim, what um, can we read into that? Right. That these these weren't, uh, uh, you know, assistants or junior diplomats. These were pretty senior statespeople involved. Oh, right. And I think it had to be because of the numbers that we're seeing. I mean, as you pointed out in your introduction, we're seeing almost 80,000 Cubans in the first six months of this fiscal year showing up at the Texas border. Uh, three times as many uh, washing up on the on the, the Florida Keys as, as compared to last year. So those numbers really necessitated a, a high level uh, of, of, of delegation engagement uh, on, on the two sides. And I, I think also, um, you know, what what this showed was that Cuba feels that it's got some leverage now because of those numbers that it could that it could get the divide administration to sit down and start talking. And this is a pattern we've seen for decades and decades with Cuba. It, it uses immigration as one of the only real leverage tools it has uh, to to get the United States to, to pay attention to what it wants to talk about. 800-743-WLRN to hear from you, South Floridians, about these uh, diplomatic talks, the highest level diplomatic talks, the latest diplomatic talks between the U.S. and Cuba regarding migration in four years. 800-743-9576. South Florida certainly is a key geography when it comes to uh, this kind of diplomacy. 800-743-WLRN, our phone number live on this Friday. Let me uh, welcome in Rick Herrero to our conversation. Rick is the executive director of the Cuba Study Group. Uh, Rick, curious, did, did you have any conversation, the study group have any conversations with the Biden administration prior to the uh, diplomatic uh, meeting on Thursday of this week? Uh, not immediately so, uh, but in, in recent weeks we had, and it was very clear to us that the primary lens through which the Biden uh, White House was looking at Cuba uh, was through immigration and uh, the raging crisis at the border, the the mounting numbers of Cubans uh, that are arriving at U.S. Uh, border points. Uh, you know, we saw those numbers reach 32,000 in March. 
almost 79,000 in the past six months. Uh, it was it was really it, it finally it, we had to see these numbers for them to st- take action towards Cuba, start moving and engaging in diplomatic talks with the Cubans, uh, something that uh, President Biden promised in part during his campaign. Um, but it very much, aside from everything else that could be in a bilateral agenda between these two countries, migration has become sort of the end-all be-all yeah. at this moment. And so, Rick, what what is the Cuba Study Group advising the Biden administration on, or frankly lobbying the administration on in its State Department conversations with uh, Cuban officials regarding migration? Sure. I mean, I think uh, the, the, the objectives here should be twofold, one immediate and one more long-term. Uh, immediately, what uh, the United States should do is establish legal pathways for migration uh, and for Cubans to be able to visit the island. I mean, for Cubans to be able to visit the United States. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of what's driving this migration is the fact that we shut down consular services, non-immigrant visas, uh, provincial travel uh, to all the other airports beyond Havana throughout Cuba. So it makes you're you're piling on the incentives, you know, when you when you add on to that to the fact that you have a deep economic crisis on the island, increased political repression and all the other factors that are making life uh, just really desperate on the ground, you add all these limitations imposed yeah. by US sanctions and that's contributing to uh, this drive to migrate. So what we're we're we're, we're suggesting is um, Reopen the consulate, uh, the consulate at the University of Havana. Some, I mean, you, um, forgive me, at the embassy. The embassy of, in Havana, of, of right? Havana. Um, fully restaff consular services. They already announced they're going to they're going to resume uh, immigrant visas, but they should also resume yep. non-immigrant visas, five-year visas, which allow Cubans to bounce back and forth between the two countries once they have these visas. Resume the Cuban Family Reunif- Reunification Parole Program. Uh, uphold the uh, the Migration Accords uh, commitment to issue 20,000 visas annually to Cuban nationals yeah. um, and reopen the refugee section that administers uh, at the, the Refugee Admissions Program in Cuba. Let's take- All of these things, I think, are going re- will, to... Will, it will not end irregular migration from Cuba as long as the, the situation is so volatile on the ground, but it will create legal and, more importantly, secure channels. Because we got to yeah. remember, all these people that are working their way to the Mexican border are really risking their lives. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and as well as those who are braving the Florida Straits as well. Rick, stick with us. Rick Herrero is the executive director of the Cuba Study Group, also speaking with Tim Paget, WLRN's America's editor. Nora Gamas Torres uh, covers uh, Cuba for our news partner, El Nuevo Herald and the Miami Herald. We'd love to hear from you, South Floridians, 800-743-9576. A uh, Cuban migrant crisis on the southern border of the United States, an enormous uptick in the number of Cubans braving the Atlantic Ocean, hoping to come to the United States as well. 800-743-9576 on this Friday afternoon here on the South Florida Roundup. Uh, Nora, let me ask you to respond a little bit to what Rick is talking about there, particularly uh, establishing these avenues for Cubans to legally visit the United States. That's different than immigrating to the United States. Uh, Kind of talk a little bit about that difference between visitation and those looking to leave the island permanently and, and how that is being framed in this discussion and in this migrant crisis that, that, uh, that Cubans and Americans are experiencing now. 
Well, the problem is that the, the U.S. shut down consular services in Havana in 2017 after, you know, as a response to these still unexplained events um, that uh, affected the health of, you know, U.S. diplomats and on the island. Uh, and so now Cubans who are applying to emigrate and to reunite with their families in the U.S., they have to travel to Guyana. That it's a very expensive destination. There's a halt network and, and we have received, you know, complaints about uh, fraud, um, people taking, um, uh, you know, it's been like very, very difficult for Cubans to stay in Guyana. Mm -hmm. There's and and, um, you know, the, the embassy announced that they were going to resume some very limited uh, consular services in May. Uh, what we were expecting coming up from this meeting was some sort of announcement that they were going to resume, fully resume consular services at the embassy. Apparently, the State Department is not ready to do that yet. And um, and that's still, it's, uh, it's a very... It, it's it's a very difficult situation for so many families that for six seven years uh, have been expecting uh, to reunite, mm -hmm. and uh, they haven't been given some have not even haven't been given a response on their applications. Yeah. Uh, for example, there's this separate uh, Cuban parole reunification program that was also suspended at the time, and uh, these people are just in a limbo, and and so many of them. They have just renounced to the, that legal pathway yeah. and they have come, you know, through regular means, paying, yeah. paying people to come to the border. Right. So, Tim, I uh, want you to describe that yeah. other pathway that uh, Cubans who are, are suffering right under the the uh, regime in, in, in Cuba and the economic uh, difficulties that continue to be present on the island and frustrated with these legal avenues being shut down over the last several years that Nora has described, looking for these other pathways, very dangerous pathways in many cases. Right. Enter Nicaragua. Um, last year, uh, Nicaraguan dictator Daniel Ortega uh, announced that Cubans would no longer need visas to uh, enter Nicaragua, therefore making Nicaragua a very convenient launching pad then for Cubans who would want to go up to uh, north to, through Mexico to, to the U.S. border. Uh, before, if Cubans were taking uh, going by land, they had to, many of them had to go uh, from points much further south and go through the Darien jungle, for example, in Panama, that was very dangerous. I mean, risking their lives, as Rick mentioned earlier. So now that they're able to go through Nicaragua as freely as they are, that's one of the big reasons we're seeing those um, uh, astronomical numbers that we're seeing in the past six months of Cubans going up uh, by land to, to the U.S. southern border. In years past or in decades past, of course, you know, we always, the, the big numbers were always on the water, right. you know, the 1994 rafters crisis, for example, that saw so many thousands of Cubans come here. That is what's really changed. That we're seeing so many Cubans now coming by land, and Nicaragua is probably yeah. one of the big reasons. And Rick, speak to how those migrants, the differences in how those migrants are treated in the United States or by the United States uh, immigration enforcement system, be it either through the Coast Guard or through ICE at the southern border, whether, whether or not those Cubans are able to get to a land border, the southern border of the United States, or are uh, attempting to come to Florida via the, uh, the ocean. Well, by and large, today they are attempting to cross the border uh, uh, through Mexico, they 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 either fly to Nicaragua prior to Nicaragua opening up 
its borders to Cubans uh, or lifting visa requirements, they will fly any other country that where they can where they can land safely in Latin America and Central America, and they'll work, work their way up to the border. Uh, previously, they would also rely on smugglers to get them out there, but less and less so relying on makeshift rafts, sort of as we saw in the Balsedo crisis of the 1990s, even though we still see mm-hmm. many people uh, migrating that way. But once they reach the border, what the Cubans still uh, enjoy that no other country has is the Cuban Adjustment Act, which was passed in the 60s. Uh, that allows Cubans, once once they are legally paroled in the United States, to, a, to adjust their status a year after doing so uh, and be able to stay here long-term as yeah. residents. Uh, so that is it's a world of a difference when you think about it, when, you know, when all they got to do is basically get to the United States and get, you know, seek asylum, and they get to the point where they're legally paroled right. in the United States. And, and once they're, they've done that, they can pretty much stay. This is uh, uh, related to a question that Ann in Miami has. Ann's been listening in. Go ahead, Ann. You're on the radio. I'd like to ask for focusing only on Cuba. We have fantastic people that want to work in Miami and want to contribute to this economy. And why are we only focusing on Cuba? We can focus on Venezuela. We can focus on other countries. And why um, just the Cuban population. Um, we already have met the quota for Cubans in Miami, and we feel we well, need more and, diversity. And I'm not sure what you're referring to there in terms of a quota for Cubans in Miami. I'm I I, I don't think there's there's any such thing. Certainly I don't think, not. I don't. You're right. Absolutely. I'm being ironic. There is no quota, and every other country has a quota. Why don't we have a quota? We have a lot of people sucking up the welfare system that um, are not contributing to this economy. Um, and we need to be more um, more careful who we let in. Not because of one nationality, we should let them in. We should get those in that have careers, that have a professions that we can benefit from. Doctors, nurses. Not just anyone that just falls into the nationality of Cuba. And we appreciate you adding your voice to the conversation. Uh, 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 Rick, if you'd like to respond to Anne uh, in terms of why the focus on Cubans is, uh, is important here in South Florida and to that uh, special immigration treatment that Cubans have historically enjoyed. Yeah, I would say I think the focus on the Cubans right now this moment is because these talks just happened yesterday and there were the first such high-level talks between the, uh, the United States and Cuba that we've seen in four years, so it's very much headline-grabbing. Uh, also, you do have a disproportionate amount of attention that members of Congress uh, that represent South Florida pay on the Cuba issue because so much of their of their voter base is Cuban-American. So you you have seen, uh, you know, representatives such as Maria Luisa Salazar and Diaz-Balart, at, this is all they've been talking about. They have been very much using the bully pulpit to be on the news to talk about Biden and this and this and these negotiations. They've helped to organize rallies, so it really just seems like it's so dominant in the airwaves in Florida. But I will say, uh, to the caller's point, um, the, the the end goal here to, should be long term to re, to address those root causes of migration from Cuba to the United States so that we reduce the incentive for Cubans to have to migrate to the United States. 
And there's only so much we can do so long as you have the Cuban government running the show in Cuba. They have had disastrous economic policies. We have seen them really ramp up repression in recent years. But we have to also be honest and recognize that the relationship between Cuba and the United States is a symbiotic one. Our sanctions aggravate conditions on the ground. They compound the hardships on the people. They give the Cuban government the pretext that they need uh, and often rely on to not only seek sympathy uh, from the international community for what they do, but also to clamp down on repression. So we need to change this relationship. And the more we can change this relationship, help stabilize the, the situation on Cuba, help keep civil society in Cuba and not looking to migrate to the United States, help nurture the private sector on that island, the less incentive there will be for those individuals to want to leave and come to the United States. Let's hear from uh, Remy listening in in Perrine. Go ahead, Remy, you're on the radio. Yeah, no, my, my concern was that I think that the Cubans are more than anything looking down the line and looking at another special economic period if it doesn't go Putin's way in Ukraine. In other words, if he loses, whatever funds he had that used to be foreign aid for Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, will end up having to be used domestically. And I think that's what the Cubans are looking at. They're seeing how, how they could possibly have some kind of negotiation so at least they stay in power rather than having a catastrophe occur where everything just collapses. Yeah, Remy, really interesting uh, dynamic there, referring to the the so-called special period after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the deep, deep economic recession that that triggered in Cuba back in the early 1990s. Uh, Tim, uh, talk about maybe this this, uh, geopolitical uh, chess uh, board that has been set up for Cuba with its uh, close, previous close ties to uh, Russia. Right. Well, I mean, I, Rick makes a very good point that there's very little the United States can do to improve economic conditions as long as, A, the embargo is in place and, B, the communist regime uh, is in place. But as you know, and I've written this about this often, is, is that there is, I think, one thing that the United States can work a little harder to do, and, and that is to funnel more aid to uh, what we call the cuenta propistas, the private entrepreneurs in Cuba, um, get more investment and, and, and capital to them because they're the, really the only dynamic component of the Cuban economy today. They're really the only engine that can create the kind of uh, ac- economic activity that could reduce that, that flow of immigration, that impetus for immigration that, that Rick was just talking about. And I think, for example, we are seeing the Cuban government make some overtures about allowing private uh, or international investment directly to those cuenta propistas, those private entrepreneurs in Cuba. And we should really, I I would hope that, for example, yesterday, that would have been something that the U.S. delegation would have been pressing. Um, You want us to help you uh, reduce immigration from Cuba? Great. Let us get more money to your your private entrepreneurs. I I don't know if that was discussed, um, but I I think it should have been. One of the other issues that uh, a lot of folks have been pressing for that was hopefully present in those uh, Thursday discussions, the issue of human rights on the island. We're going to talk more about that with Tim Padgett of WLRN, Nora Gamas Torres with El Nuevo Herald and the Miami Herald and Rick Herrero, executive director of the Cuba Study Group. It'll be next as the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN continues in a moment.
We're back on the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. This is the sound of a street protest in Cuba back in July. Hundreds of people across the island took part in protests. They were arrested. Activists say it was more than 1,000 people. U.S. and Cuban diplomats met this week discussing the massive increase in migrants leaving Cuba trying to come to the United States. A week ago, the State Department released a report warning of what it called significant human rights issues in Cuba. 800-743-WLRN, our phone number to join our conversation, 800-743-9576. Tim Padgett is the America's editor here at WLRN. Nora Gamas-Torres with El Nuevo Herald, the Miami Herald, and Rick Herrero still with us, executive director of Cuba Study Group. Nora, let me ask you about this State Department report. You reported on it, significant human rights issues in Cuba. Tell us more about this warning. Yeah, it was a, it was a, you know, a very a critical report. Uh, it was, you know, I, it was something I, I, I noted, like compared with, you know, report from uh, previous years. But it's, it's also because, you know, this last year we have seen, um, you know, a huge crackdown on protesters. Then we have seen summary trials. We have seen several um, instances of um, abuse in, in prison uh, told by relatives of those uh, protesters uh, that has been jailed. So, I mean, State Department kind of um, went through all of that. Uh, they put a lot of attention to what, what happened mm-hmm. to those people that went to the streets to ask for regime change and better living conditions last July. And um, it, it actually included a lot of these testimonies. Some of them have already been you know, reported by the media. Um, I know they also uh, were in contact with a lot of uh, organizations that have been tracking all the people that have been in prison and arrested in connection um, to the demonstrations. So it was a very uh, critical, hard report on the on the conditions on on the island. Uh, Rick Herrero, how significant was this report out of the State Department uh, to you at the Cuba Study Group, a U.S. Uh, cabinet agency talking about significant human rights issues in Cuba, putting it there in black and white in a report? Well, we've been following this very closely, so nothing there was very surprising. I mean, a lot of the human rights issues that we've seen uh, just in the last year have been very much in, in, in the open air for the public to see. We saw it. Uh, in the government's uh, violent crackdown of uh, protesters uh, who took to the streets on July 11th. We've seen it in these exorbitant sentences that have been handed down to many of those uh, protesters uh, by Cuban courts. In many cases, we're talking about teenagers receiving multi-decade-long sentences for having participated in these protests. So it's not really new. Um, I think uh, the bigger question is... um, what is our policy doing to help change this dynamic in Cuba? Mm-hmm. And what is very clear to us is that our current policy is a dead-end street insofar as helping improve human rights conditions in Cuba because our because we've returned to a, a very aggressive policy of isolation and of blanket sanctions against uh, that are supposedly meant to uh, punish the Cuban government but are mostly impact mostly impacting regular folks on the ground. It's exacerbating uh, the economic hardship on the on, uh, for people. It's it serves as a primary pretext for 
the Cuban government to uh, clamp down on repression. And it's not really doing anything to advance democracy, advance human rights, improve living conditions for folks on the ground. There's only so much we can do since the, the primary cost of all this suffering is, without question, uh, the Cuban government and their poor economic policy making their, their uh, political repression and so on. But there's much that we can do to change the dynamic. We saw steps taken in that direction during the Obama administration. Um, that policy wasn't perfect. Uh, there was still plenty of repression at the time, but there was a sense of hope. Mm. There was a sense of a change in a future for the Cuban people. Uh, and and so there was. we saw that there was less desperation on the ground and less of a mad dash to just leave the country because people saw no other uh, recourse for themselves. Yeah, and Tim Padgett, to be clear, right, the, the, the Trump administration rolled back the Obama administration's opening to Cuba. The Biden administration has essentially continued what was the Trump policy toward Cuba, right? Oh, right. And, and, and a lot of that has to do not with foreign policy, but with domestic Florida politics. Yeah. Uh, the Biden administration is very reluctant, if, if not frightened right now, to, to wade into any sort of uh, rolling back of what Trump did, because that would argue not just the, the, the uh, Cuban exile community of voters here, but a lot of other more you know, conservative Latino uh, communities, you know, Colombians, uh, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, who, who see our Cuba policy as the gauge of how we deal with the other left-wing regi- regimes that those communities have, yeah. have been fleeing. So that, that's one of the big reasons for the Biden administration's reluctance here. Gloria has been listening in in Miami, wants to join the conversation. Great to have you, Gloria. Go ahead. Thanks so much, Tom. Uh, I just wanted to speak to the callers. Uh, I believe her name was Anne. Her comment about... Uh, the uh, Cuban population um, kind of draining the welfare mm-hmm. system. You know, I really would point her back to history and the statistics about the Cuban pop community here, especially in South Florida and all over the world. It is one of the most educated, one of the most proactively working, and one of the most productive communities of immigrants in the entire world. You, there's not a single Cuban that hasn't gotten here to Miami Uh, or anywhere else, because I've lived in L.A., I've lived in New York, everywhere. They're hardworking and they're educated. She said lawyers, doctors. They are lawyers. They are doctors. They are nurses. They are teachers. They have professions. It's a communist country. It's a specific condition that that they have been thrown into that have made them immigrant. If not, they wouldn't be immigrants. So I really would point that out, especially with the history here that we have in South Florida. That was kind of a uh, generalized statement that I understand, absolutely, uh, her point of view, but really look into what the Cuban population has done here in Miami. Gloria, it's great to have your voice in the conversation. Thanks for listening and calling. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care. Joanne is listening in on Sunrise, in Sunrise, rather. Go ahead, Joanne. You're on the radio. Yes, hi. I was just wondering, why is the onus on the United States so much to... Uh, partner with and, and, and assist Cuba. Aside from Russia, are there any other countries that have alliances that can, mm. you know, render aid and assistance and, you know, humanitarian help? Why is it always, why is the onus on the U.S.? Thank you so much. To Cuba, right. Uh, Tim Padgett, I'll have you tackle that first because, you know, w- one of the 
one of the countries Cuba has turned to over the past 20 years or 30 years, I guess, since the uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union has been Venezuela, which uh, which supported it significantly until its own economy collapsed under the weight of uh, its concentration in uh, in oil. Right. And, and, and contributed significantly in terms of oil, as, as you just put it. And, that, and and Venezuela is much more hard put now to uh, give uh, Cuba that kind of uh, petro largesse. Uh, as its own economy has, has seen the worst collapse uh, in, in the world today. I, I think uh, she mentioned Russia, but um, I, I think the more significant uh, uh, player to point out here is China. Mm. And I think uh, when, it, when it comes to not just Cuba, but Nicaragua, Venezuela, the other left-wing authoritarian regimes in, in this hemisphere, China has really been uh, you know, one of the, the biggest sources of of aid that they can depend on, and I, I, I that that perhaps has diminished in, in in recent years, but it's still there. And and I think um, that that's that's where we really have to be looking these days: is how to what extent is China willing to stick stick its political and economic neck out these days uh, for Cuba? And it's going to be interesting in the years to come to see. Nora, from years to come to just days and weeks to come, any clarity from the State Department whether or not there's going to be a second round of uh, diplomacy regarding the Cuban migration crisis? No, they used to have uh, these talks um, among um, every you know, six officials months, I think it was. every six, six months. Yeah. yeah. So, but no, I. It was just I'm, I'm telling you, it was surprising just to see like uh, the reluctance to answer questions hmm. with more uh, details. So we cannot say there's an upcoming announcement, um, but um, so far we, we know very little. We also don't know if the Cuban government agreed again to take back uh, Cubans deported from the U.S. Um, the statement also do not, uh, does not address that. Nora Gamez-Torres covers Cuba for our news partner, El Nuevo Herald and the Miami Herald. Tim Paget is America's editor at WLRN. And Rick Herrero has been joining us as well. Rick is the executive director at the Cuba Study Group. To the three of you, thanks for sharing your important perspectives with us. Much appreciated. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Still to come on our program, Miami City Commissioners again are due to decide the fate of a soccer stadium complex. Are you ready for it? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to WLRN and the South Florida Roundup. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. The fate of 73 acres in Miami, where a public golf course is now, is due to be decided Thursday by Miami City Commissioners. This is at least the fourth time the vote has been on the agenda whether or not to lease the public land for 99 years for a professional soccer stadium, hotel, office building, and shopping center complex. The vote will decide if the land becomes Miami Freedom Park or remains Melrose Golf Course. It's been a long and twisting journey here. Eight years ago, David Beckham announced his plans to bring a new Major League Soccer team to Miami. Four years ago, Miami voters okayed the team's owners to negotiate a deal with the city to replace the golf course just east of MIA to build that complex. Inter-Miami then began playing soccer two years ago, but not in Miami. Its home stadium is in Fort Lauderdale, as the team has been searching for a stadium site in Miami. So, eight years after the first Major League Soccer announcement, four years after voters approved the negotiation, city commissioners are due to vote on the deal Thursday unless it gets delayed again. And four of the five commissioners have to approve it in order for it to happen. 
So do you live or work near the Mel Reese Golf Course? Do you play at Mel Reese? If you're an inner Miami fan, where do you want to go to see the team play Major League Soccer? 800-743-WLRN is our phone number live on this Friday afternoon here on the South Florida Roundup. 800-743-9576. Joy Fletcher covers the city of Miami for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Joy, welcome back to the Roundup. Nice to have you again. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you want to play some odds on whether or not the vote gets <laughs> delayed on Thursday or goes through? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I can tell you what I know, which okay. is that um, uh, the this this is a, a complicated political situation for the mayor uh, Francis Suarez, who has championed this deal since 2018, since the deal's inception. Um, uh, that went through a referendum that was successful. That's why they were able to negotiate in this no bid, 99 year lease that that would that would allow the, this project to continue to move forward. Um, but now what he needs is uh, four of five commissioners to vote yes on a, a long, complicated set of lease documents that would govern, uh, you know, the conveyance of this land. And uh, one commissioner has since the very beginning committed to voting no. Right. So they got to go four for four. Um, that's where we've been. Uh, ever since the negotiations were uh, completed earlier this year. And uh, I think the delays that you've seen have been attributed to a, a host of things officially on the record from the government. Um, and most of what I've written, I've tried to really tease out and suggest, which is what I think is, is probably um, a, a more complete picture, is that the votes are not secured right mm -hmm. now. Uh, the deal mm -hmm. is that, that you need four out of four. Um, that leaves everybody in a very powerful position on that commission. And um, we'll see if, if, if they got four votes next week. So lay out the scope. What do we know of what's on the record, uh, what this deal includes as, uh, as has been publicly released? So um, a soccer stadium is a portion of this project, right? Mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a significant commercial real estate deal that the city uh, could be engaging in. Um, a billion dollar redevelopment of Mel Reese golf course directly adjacent to the airport, right? That would include uh, a hotel, 750 hotel rooms, uh, a big commercial promenade, a uh, mall, like outdoor mall, um, an office park, um, and, uh, and a soccer stadium, along with a 58 acre public park, uh, and a parking structure that would have soccer fields on top. All of that would be under uh, a 99 year lease with the city um, that would include a couple of key components um, to start three and a half million, about three and a half million dollars in rent annually to the city, uh, or uh, once the commercial portion of it is up and running, um, a, uh, a percentage of gross, um, if it exceeds that three and a half million dollar figure. Uh, that is probably, I'll stop there for a second because that's probably a figure that is on a lot of people's minds yeah. and under a lot of scrutiny right now. Yeah, three and a half million dollars uh, today in 2022 is not three and a half million dollars in the year 2082 or 2092 or 2112 uh, when this lease would uh, essentially expire. Right, right. There are a couple of ex accelerators built into the um, into the uh, contract, uh, including CPI adjustments, that's a certain percentages that the that, that could go up. Yeah, it's consumer price to, index. That's an inflation measure there, CPI. Right, exactly. So, so there are some things that would trigger um, increases to that figure. But what's particularly controversial right now um, is in January these documents were first released and we poured over them, and uh, the three and a half million dollar figure was set 
in 2018. That was actually mm-hmm. a number we were familiar with because that was something that was publicized before that referendum. And, uh, you know, when I, I questioned the team about it, I asked the mayor about it. And, uh, you know, what, what they're arguing is that they've had a whole set of proposal uh, uh, land appraisals that have, uh, you know, projected out, you know, a certain amount of commercial activity on that property. And they argue that uh, the appraisals actually, given the fact that the land is contaminated and requires significant millions of dollars, and about 39 million is what they estimate in remediation, in addition to a whole host of improvements just to prepare it for any kind of a, you know, a vertical development, um, that the city's actually getting a good deal and that they're paying over fair market rent. Yeah. Now, the bear, like, the per- you ask someone on the street, right? And I think any, anyone would look at this and say, wait a minute. So, really like purely from the standpoint of like, what did rent cost in 2018 for anybody in Miami? Yeah, and yeah. what does it cost yeah. today in yeah. 2022? You start to kind of lose that argument a little bit, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that's where we fall. Yeah, yeah, any apartment tenant would love to be able to pay rent in 2022 at the rate that they were paying in 2018. Uh, certainly sure. four years yeah. ago. And, and, and one of the reasons why this has gotten uh, a real spotlight on it this week is uh, from Miami filmmaker Billy Corbin. He launched a social media campaign to pressure Miami city commissioners to vote against the deal. He's known for his documentaries like Cocaine Cowboys and the U about the University of Miami football program back in the 80s and 90s. Now, I want to listen to part of the video that Corbin released this week. These five commissioners are voting on the biggest real estate deal in the history of Miami. And if you thought the Marlins Park deal was shitty, wait until you get a load of this. The city wants to get now uh, an intended twist of irony there. The voice you hear is voice of former Miami Marlins president David Sampson, who led the negotiations with Miami-Dade County and the city of Miami when building Marlins Park. But of course, Joey Fletcher's with the Herald, the huge difference between the public financing that was at the heart of the controversy with the Marlins deal and the heart of the controversy with this Miami Freedom Park uh, possibility. There are some significant differences between these arrangements. It, it, there is a it, it, there's a, a, a nexus here, though, in sort of what you value, right? right. The valuation of what's what we're talking about. So in, in the Marlins Park, there was a, there was a, a set of financial arrangements that saddled the taxpayers with you know, more than a billion dollars in debt over a generation right. um, to construct this baseball stadium. In this case, uh, it, it is a, it's a blockbuster land deal uh, that could potentially happen here. And, and of, of the, of the likes that the Marlins stadium, frankly, could have never been because the land wasn't there. This is right. a, a, a piece of property that is in the center of the County uh, with a lot of transit corridors that, you know, is going to make a whole lot of money. <laughs> and, and that, that's, that's, that's undisputed. Uh, the team is, is, is arguing that they're being pushed to the sort of brink of their profitability, given the financial terms that are on the table right now. And critics are saying that's baloney. And mm-hmm. there's a whole lot more to mine from this um, and a whole lot other a whole set of public benefits that are probably not even discussed at this point that could potentially, you know, make this deal something that moves from the bad column to the good column. Yeah. That's 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 a big debate right now. Joy Fletch just covers uh, City of Miami for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Joy, stick with us. We want to hear from you, uh, South Floridians. What do you think of Miami Freedom Park, uh, Melrose, or Miami Inner Miami Soccer Stadium? 800-743-9576 is our phone number. 800-743-WLRN. Enrique in Miami on line two. Go ahead, Enrique. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, obviously, I, I do not know the intricates of the financing and uh, the economics of the deal that they're trying to pass through. But uh, 
uh, as it is, that golf course is the worst golf course that we have in all Miami area or Broward or what you know, in all South Florida. It's just right next to the airport. We have an airplane passing every 30 seconds, 90 seconds. I stopped there to beat traffic a couple of times to hit the range, and it's unbearable. And so, uh, and I really think that soccer needs, uh, in Miami, needs to have a place, you know, and uh, I think it's it's a, a huge potential with all the, the Latin, Hispanic uh, population that we have. Mm-hmm. We see soccer increasing tremendously all throughout the United States. And here in Miami, we, we can't launch because we don't even manage to have a stadium. So I think it's a huge opportunity. Obviously, it needs to be looked through uh, the deal, you know, to be the best possible for, for our city. But most definitely, I think anything will be better than the golf course that we have as it is right now. Enrique, I appreciate you lending your voice to the conversation. John in Palmetto Bay, you're next. Go ahead, John. Yeah, um, I tell you, it, it's, no, it's not that way. The, the golf course needs to stay. Jorge Mascanoza is a billionaire. Beckham's, they're loaded. They so Jorge Mas is the, uh, is the uh, uh, part owner of Inter-Miami, uh, the soccer team. Go ahead. Yeah, and why does he need money when he's already got money? Why does he need the city's money? Why does he need the city's land? He can buy. He can go to Doral and, and buy some acres out there. Tell me a good reason why he needs the money when he's already he's already a billionaire. Why do I think that to get our dime now? That golf course needs to stay there. I play golf there, you know, and a lot of people do. And it needs to stay just like it is. And he needs to go to Doral and get, buy him some land over there. Your thoughts on that? John, fair enough. Uh, John, uh, put him in the column of Keep Melrose. Uh, Ian in Miami has an idea about where to build the stadium. Go ahead, Ian. I just want to make a quick point. It's called Inter-Miami, on Inter-Doral. Um, Mr. Fletcher was absolutely correct to, to point out the transit corridors. Um, the stadium is right in the middle of a very big area. Um, long term, you have the Park Corridor, the East West Corridor, the Miami Loop Park, um, possible inner city Amtrak trains. Um, and I recall uh, a Books and Books uh, talk with Donald Cohen on the private, who wrote a wonderful book on the privatization of everything. Uh, and Levine Cabo was there. And um, I, I, I don't. I, I, the deal has so much potential, but no one seems to want to really push the team to, to do better. Um, right now, the, the proposed transit quotation or transit connection, and I'm doing air quotes, is a walkway. Right. I, I mean, like like Metro Rail is right there. The county owns the land right there. Why not extend the Metro Rail? There, there's what I'm getting at is there's so much potential, and no one seems to want to, to really twist an arm and force them to do better. Yeah, Ian. Thank you, th- thank you for uh, lending your voice to the conversation, Joy Fletcher with the Herald. Uh, is the is the city negotiating with Inner Miami? Is the is the city or or the the um, administration of Mayor Suarez negotiating essentially with commissioners at this point about this uh, potential deal? That's a really good question. It's it's it, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of um, hush hush right now. I yeah. think uh, frankly from from the city hall just because uh, for 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 the majority of the pandemic and uh, since the referendum really. Um, in in uh, 2018, uh, the city has been ostensibly negotiating with Miami Freedom Park with Jorge Mas from Mas Tech, right? Uh, David Beckham and his and, and and the lawyers that they hired uh, to try to hash out the terms of this deal. Um, right now, uh, in in the world where they need to count votes, uh, it probably could be going both ways, or perhaps they're waiting to just see what it is that commissioners want. I mean, next Thursday, what we could see, I mean, you asked me about delays, right? Yeah. What we could see, if there's not a vote, 
right? What we could see is a, a group of commissioners stating on the record what they're looking for. That's sort of what happened in, in, in before the referendum when uh, Ken Russell, one of the commissioners, uh, said that he was interested in a, a solid plan to replace parkland that was lost right. and living wage on site at Freedom Park. You could see some more of that happening, and that could potentially, what, what yeah. the gentleman suggested, you know, put us on track to understanding how a deal could potentially get better. We'll see if there's some clarity Thursday afternoon with that special Miami City Commission meeting. Joy Fletches with our news partner, the Miami Herald. Thanks so much, Joy. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Finally, in the roundup this week, throughout April, we've been celebrating where we live through poetry. WLRN partnered again this year with O Miami Poetry Festival, inviting you to write an ode to your zip code. All you have to do is use your five-digit zip code to write a five-line poem. Each digit of your zip code determines how many words per line. It works like this. I can't imagine a better place to take my everything bagel to the sandy shore. This is Dana Bassett from North Miami Beach. My zip code is 33180. My name is Alan Means. I live in Coral Gables. My zip code is 33124. And my zip code is... Ducklings toddling across campus make students stop, take their headphones off to listen. We built a Zippo tool to help you at WLRN.org slash Zippodes. WLRN.org slash Zippodes. Now on Wednesday, April 27th, you're invited to join us as we celebrate Zippodes during an online event. You can catch it on WLRN's Facebook page and on WLRN's YouTube channel. So it doesn't matter what zip code you live in, you can join us. It's streaming live 7 p.m. Wednesday. You will hear many of the zip code poems and see poets during the live virtual event. My name is Eric. I live in Bay Harbor Islands. My zip code is 33154. And my zip code is in our park, boys speaking Spanish, jostle, all over the basketball court. Somehow, yarmulkes stay on. So join us 7 o'clock Wednesday night on WLRN's Facebook page and YouTube channel. Go to WLRN.org slash Zippodes for more details. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The Director of Radio Operations and the program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, and supporting public broadcasting. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.